The New Testament reading today is from Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the life, and the truth. Send us your spirit now to awaken our minds to know you, to kindle our hearts to love you, and renew our will that we may seek you and walk in your ways to the glory of our Father in heaven. Amen. So this passage from Revelation 11 that we just read um, should probably come with a trigger warning. It's, I mean, did you, did you squirm as we were reading it? Um, I've read this passage every single day this week, and I've squirmed every single time, including just now. It's a disturbing vision, and it's sprinkled throughout with troubling words and images that make it difficult for us to want to keep reading all the way to the end, much less receive it as God's word for us today. But as I've sat with this text this week, I've been really amazed, actually, about how this vision of John has come into focus uh, and how what's really there is so different from what I initially perceived. And the first thing to notice about this text, I think, is just this. It's that John's vision here in Revelation 11 is like a mosaic in which each tile has a significant backstory. You see, the images and phrases in John's vision and the place names and all the weirdly specific numbers, all of them come from the Old Testament, and each has like a life of its own in its own context. And it would take us forever to try to unpack each and every one of those one by one, but for John's original audience, they would have immediately made sense. There would have been a rhetorical power in juxtaposing them and having them just hit you one after the other. Um, and if you just to try to illustrate this, just imagine turning on the news um, and hearing an American politician say something like this. You know, 12 score and two years ago, a, a dream of America was born. A dream that wasn't good enough, but has grown brighter and more beautiful in every generation. A dream of America in which we ask not what our country could do for us, but what we could do for our country. An America in which there was nothing to fear but fear itself, in which one small step for someone could be a giant leap for everyone. An America that was a land of opportunity, not just for Johnny, but for Jamal and Jenny too. This land is your land. This land is my land. This is America. Let's come together and make it greater than ever. What would you immediately understand about that speech, besides the obvious fact that the speaker must have had a seriously overinflated sense of self and an understaffed speechwriting team? Um, you would immediately understand that these are borrowed words. 
they come from somewhere, right? And you, you know where they come from. And so it's impossible for you not to call to mind as you hear them the original speeches and the contexts in which they were given. Uh, and, it's in, and it'd be obvious that that's actually what the speaker wants you to do, right? That that's kind of the point. The illusions are supposed to be obvious. But of course, if you'd never heard any of those speeches, if you didn't know those speeches, if those words meant nothing to you, what you would hear is probably something very, very different than what you'd be intended, what the speaker was intending for you to hear. And that's actually our problem as we come to Revelation. And here in chapter 11, we get this vision of John that's like this collage of iceberg tips. But we don't know the icebergs well enough for the collage to have its intended effect on us. And we aren't sufficiently fluent in the imagery and the various storylines of the Old Testament to be able to track with what John is doing. So without help, we end up missing some of the more important aspects of this vision. For example, if you're anything like me, um, you know, you read the part at the end of this vision about the great earthquake killing 7,000 people and terrifying the rest of the people until they basically cry uncle and worship God. You read that and you're like, what kind of picture is that, right? How does the God of this vision square with the God of mercy revealed to us so boldly in Jesus? But here's the thing. We miss the fact because we don't We don't speak this language and this cultural history fluently. We miss the fact that the accent in this passage is actually not on God's judgment, but on God's mercy. You see, when the prophets of old, specifically Isaiah and Amos, spoke of God's coming judgment, they depicted scenes in which the destruction would fall upon 90% of the people of the earth and only a tenth would be spared. But here in Revelation, in this vision, that's reversed. It's a reversal of that other picture. Judgment falls upon one-tenth, not the nine-tenths. And furthermore, if you look at the people in the vision, both the 10% and the 90%, who are they? Who are these people? They're the ones violently killing God's beloved. They're gloating over their dead bodies in the streets. It's the lynch mob clamoring to get a selfie with a mutilated victim. And when God's kingdom of justice comes, the earth shakes and a tenth of them fall, but the other 90% are awakened to the reality that they've been waging war on God's beloved and they're awestruck by the presence and power of God and they turn and they give glory to him. They're spared. The, The point in the vision isn't that judgment falls upon some, it's that God's mercy is so much bigger than we would expect. And God's victory over evil and death is so complete. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that God desires not the destruction of the nations, but their inclusion. And that storyline will only grow brighter as we make our way through the book of Revelation toward the final vision of the new Jerusalem. So what is this passage about? And what in the world does it have to do with us? Put simply, this passage is about the vocation of God's people as God's witnesses on the earth and this hope of resurrection life that compels God's people to live into that calling. Now, it's about more than that, right? It's about God wins. 
That's what Revelation is about. God wins in the end. But specifically, the picture of God winning in the end in this vision applies to the witnesses. It's a passage, it's a vision about how being a witness to God and what God is doing in the world, it's a dangerous but important job. It's dangerous because just as the world did not recognize Jesus and rejected him, the same can be expected for those whom he calls as his witnesses. And it's an important job because the living witness of God's people is the means by which God is bringing his kingdom on earth. It's a dangerous job. It's an important job. It's also a glorious job because it's one through which we commune with Jesus as we share in both his suffering and his vindication, both of which are instrumental in God's work of saving and healing the world. How do we see this in this text? Well, through a few vivid images. First, if you look at verses 1 and 2, there's this image of the people of God portrayed as a temple under siege. John uses language from Ezekiel, um, his prophetic vision of God's future temple, and then repurposes it here to paint this picture of, of God's people marking out holy space in the earth, even as they're being trampled. That's the first vision. And then the second vision we get in verses 3 through 13 are God's people collectively portrayed as two witnesses. And of course, two witnesses is the number of witnesses required under Old Testament law for a testimony to be considered credible. And this vision pulls together images from the story of Moses and Elijah and even Abraham, as well as from prophetic visions of Zechariah and Daniel and Ezekiel. There's like a ton going on here. It's the mosaic where each tile has a significant backstory. But what emerges is this picture of Jesus' followers taking up our calling to bear witness to the reality of God's kingdom that has come in Jesus Christ and will come in fullness at his return. And the picture is of, of what this vocation is all about is that as we do that, as we enter in to this vocation of bearing witness, we stand at the intersection of two clashing kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, which makes our experience a bewildering blend of power and weakness, a confusing blend of victory and defeat. On one hand, what comes through in this vision is that God's power is at work in God's people, in us, even here and now, that God's power is at work in us. And to do that, John, he, he depicts it in terms of Elijah's shutting off the sky, where, where the rain stopped because the people were worshiping the false rain god. And so God shut up, shut up the heavens so that the people would worship him and recognize him as the giver of rain. And then Moses turning the river to blood, this other picture where God bears witness through Moses to Pharaoh and the powers of Egypt, right? Egypt of old, to call them to turn to him as the source of life and sustenance. John speaks of God's witnesses in this age, now, as vested with that agency that flows from the very presence and power of God himself, the very life force of heaven and earth. 
And it's this vivid, imaginative language that's meant to be empowering to people who feel powerless. But on the other hand, what we see in this vision is that God's witnesses are vulnerable. Vulnerable to exploitation and violence in a world that seeks life apart from God. A world that views God's interfering with it as torment rather than blessing. And we get this gruesome scene of this beast rising from the abyss to wage war on and kill God's witnesses. And the inhabitants of the earth reenacting this scene of Jesus' crucifixion as they subject all of God's witnesses to violence, death, and humiliation. It's gruesome. It's meant to be gruesome. The original audience was living in a world where they saw things like this happening. And so this gruesome image isn't meant to be some sort of bizarre shock and horror kind of thing. It's meant to actually connect the real hope in Christ to the real things that are happening around them. And what we see in this vision is that in the end, neither the beast nor the mob nor death itself will have the last word over God's witnesses. Because just as God was faithful to raise the lamb who was slain, so too will he be faithful to raise all who bear witness to him. That's the vision. That's the hope. And John uses this language from the prophet Ezekiel, from the valley of the dry bones, right? To cast this vision of God's breathing, like, breathing life back in to those from whom the world had squeezed it out. The renewal of all things. God wins in the end, and his witnesses shall be vindicated and shall stand upon the earth. That's the picture. So what does that have to do with us, right? I mean, there's like this 30,000-foot view, this sort of future hope. What does it mean for us? What concretely does this vision actually tell us about our own calling in the earth? Well, first thing I think we see here is that when we think about what it means to be God's witnesses, what it means to be people who bear the story of God in connection with our own story and offer that to the world, people who speak the truth in love, the first thing we see is that our vocation as God's witnesses on the earth is a humble calling. Notice that the witnesses in this vision are clothed in sackcloth. That's not the wardrobe of triumph. That's the wardrobe of repentance and lament and humility. Just think of all the ways that pride erodes our witness. All the ways our posture of self-defense or self-aggrandizing make what we have to say about Jesus just implausible to the people in our lives. The witnesses in John's vision aren't proud but they take a posture of humility. They weep over the brokenness of the world and of their own lives as they testify to something much greater, much more beautiful that is coming, the reality that God will bring his kingdom. So our vocation is a humble calling, but secondly, I think this shows us that our vocation as witnesses, it's actually a radically nonviolent calling. This one doesn't come through as clear without a little help. If you look at verse 5, the stuff about fire pouring out of the witnesses' mouths and consuming foes. Fire. 
in this vision and in the book of Revelation, it symbolizes truth-telling, truthful testimony. It's contrasted with other symbols that come out of other mouths. One of my favorite moments from this week where I just, it was a head-scratching moment where I was just sort of like, what is, what is my job? I'm here reading a book on Revelation and it's talking about the symbolism of fire. And it's like the fire coming out of the mouths of the witnesses is contrasted with other symbols, such as the spirit frogs that come out of the mouth of the beast. I'm just like, spirit frogs coming out of the mouth of the beast. That's, ne- that's a phrase I've never actually encountered before. Stay tuned for next week. We'll do spirit frogs. The spirit frogs and other things symbolize deceptive speech that come from other power sources and other embodiments of power that are depicted by the beast and others. Fire is a different symbol. It it symbolizes truthful speech, truth-telling. And the consuming that happens isn't like a violent beating down of foes. It's it's truth-telling. That the witnesses who are being physically and violently persecuted by Rome, they don't fight back with sticks and stones. They fight back by speaking the truth in love. This whole fire-consuming thing is actually a radically nonviolent image of what it means to be God's witness in the world. We aren't the ones who return violence for violence. That's not our calling. We're the ones who are called to turn the other cheek, believing that the truth will set us free. That's our calling. That's our calling in the public sphere, one that's dominated by moral outrage right now. That's our calling in the private sphere, in our interpersonal relationships. Not to be waging war against others, not to be deceptive, but to be truth-tellers, to be truth-seekers, to honor one another non-violently. So our vocation as witnesses, it's humble. It's nonviolent. And thirdly, I think we see it as, pr- as a profoundly hopeful calling. It's like a calling to be a tree of life in God's world, rooted in streams of living water, right? God's own power of life flowing in and through us. These are what these images of these prophetic powers call to mind, are people who live deeply in communion with God that God used in powerful ways as conduits of his life in the world. To be a witness, to be called as a witness of God in the earth is to be called to be a tree of life in a place that so desperately needs one. But here's the thing about being a tree of life that, God, that John reveals to us again in this image. He reminds us that we become the tree of life for the world in and only in our sharing in Jesus' experience of the tree of death. We become a tree of life in the world in and only in our sharing of Jesus' experience of the tree of death. Our experiences of suffering, therefore, are not evidence of God's rejection of us or God's inability to help, but rather they are the wounds through which we know and feel the wounds of Jesus himself, by whose stripes we in the world are healed. You see, John's original audience 
needed to know this hope as they suffered persecution at the hands of Rome. But you and I, we need to, know, we need to know this help, this hope as well. Perhaps we're not facing government persecution, execution. Perhaps we're not literally fearing that our lives will be crushed and our bodies dragged in the streets. There are people in the world today who do fear those things legitimately, and we should pray for them. They are our sisters and our brothers. But even us here today, in the here and now, in this place of relative comfort in the world, we need to know it. We need to know that God wins in the end. We need to know that the victory, the only victory that lasts and ultimately matters, isn't the culture war in our country. It isn't the argument that I'm presently having with my neighbor. It isn't the game of life in which we're either crushing it or missing out. It isn't the perfect family or retirement or whatever else we want to win for ourselves or achieve. The only victory that lasts and ultimately matters is the victory of the lamb who was slain. Jesus, who embraced the tree of death in order to become the tree of life for the world and who calls us to join him in that work as we bear witness to him in the world. This Jesus who wins is the one who calls us as his witnesses to bear witness not only with our lips, but with our lives as we embrace the cost of love for the sake of the world. And what we discover in that vocation of living into our calling as God's witnesses is that we discover that hidden there in the ordinary stuff of everyday life is the glory of the kingdom of God invading this place with all of its beauty, with all of its healing power, with all of its hope, with all of its glory, and with the life of God himself. And your calling, our calling, is to be a tree of that life in the world, rooted in the living water of him who is the giver of life and offering the fruit of the good news to the world. And we need to know as we do that that the one who calls us is faithful. God wins in the end. And he includes us in his victory through the lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for the glory that you reveal to us in Jesus. We give you thanks for the love displayed at the cross as your son gave himself sacrificially for our sake, for the sake of the whole world. Would you strengthen us by your spirit to courageously and faithfully and hopefully take up a life in union and communion with Christ that we would joyfully bear witness to the good news even as we are trampled, even as we are disappointed, even as we suffer and find ourselves thrown against the jagged rocks of life in a broken world, would you strengthen us, kindle our hope, and make us people of peace and hope and truth in your world? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The offering is a time where we